I'm James, and this is Producing Fun, a podcast about making games from a product perspective. Welcome to Producing Fun. My guest this week is David Weiss, podcaster and managing editor of Canadian board game site, The Daily Worker Placement. I've thought for a while now that people don't take game reviewers seriously enough as a knowledge resource in the industry. Given the vast explosion in the number of people reviewing games in recent years, it's easy to be a bit cynical from the publishing side of things. Almost everyone seems to be getting into game reviews now. Everyone has a YouTube channel, everyone's an influencer, and the promise of free games, even if you don't have a massive reach, looks like a great deal for a hobbyist who would have purchased many of these products anyway. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Publishers need to be smart about who they send their precious pre-production copies of their game to. Of course they do. They really can't afford to do otherwise. But if you fall for the cynical line, you miss two important things. First, that this explosion of enthusiasm is actually great. The fact that people want to get their hands on these things is because they love them. Regardless of scale, all reviewers have the potential to become some of your fiercest advocates. And they exist because the whole world is waking up to how great games have become and the extent of their power to build in an easygoing way real human connection in a world dominated by glowing screens and digital isolation. Second, amongst this large group are individuals who not only love games, but really, really know their stuff. People who have seen and experienced so many titles that they really have a sense of the artistic and commercial landscape of games, and even where they might be going, like no one else. It's for exactly this reason that I wanted David on the show, David's site, The Daily Worker Placement, is actually one of the better-known review sites publishing primarily text content. But more importantly than this, he's a walking, talking encyclopedia of game knowledge. His podcast series, The Game Changers, a 26-part history of modern tabletop games, is, for my money, the best podcast in board games bar none. A self-confessed labour of love, it demonstrates the kind of deep and wide knowledge base very few possess. That knowledge is something game makers should be very interested in. As you might expect, this conversation went in all sorts of directions, from the evolution of game genres to games as storytelling machines, from changing tastes and complexity over time to the emergence of what David calls the AAA board game title, as well as practical tips for publishers looking to get media coverage. By nature, this is a more wide-ranging and at times theoretical conversation than many others that I have. But if topics like how games actually work to create fun, or the two-way relationship between game design and marketing interest you, I think you'll really, really enjoy this episode. We join, just as I've asked David to tell me a little bit more about the Daily Worker Placements audience. Well, from the beginning, Sean Jacquemain, who is the sort of editor emeritus and founder of the site, uh, always wants it to be more than just about board games. It's supposed to be about board game culture. So that's quite different in focus. I mean, many, many content creators are really about reviewing the latest games that have come out. And there are some that aren't. I'm in a couple of Facebook content creator groups. And whenever anyone posts, oh, I've got a game, a Kickstarter coming up, would anyone like to write about it? There's always three dozen sites lined up. Oh, yes, we'd be interested. We'd be interested. And honestly, that's not as certainly for me or for Sean or Nicole, Nicole Hoy, who is sort of the third of the triumvirate 
mm. originally, who's also stepped back, but for different reasons. We were interested in writing about new games, but more about the meta of it all, about board game culture, about issues around representation, diversity, or doing deep dives into particular designers or particular currents in board game history, all kinds of things. So mm. what I would say is our audience is not just board gamers. It is board gamers who want to know more about the background of the hobby and maybe some of the issues that are facing the hobby. Interesting. How does that change kind of what you're looking to create for it? So how, how do you pick the those kind of articles then? Well, I mean, there's no question that we still cover new releases. I mean, we've worked hard to build relationships with different publishers, with Pandasaurus, with Ravensburger, with yourself and, and, and other people. Plug, magnate, hashtag magnate. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, any opportunity. Thank you. I was going to have to welcome. work it in there subtly somehow later. So it's perfect. So, and, and I would also deny, like many content creators, one of the mm. reasons I wanted to do this was, hey, maybe I can get some free games. There's yeah. no question. Yeah. But I think that there is a, there's a trap there. And I think it's, being, I think it's being discussed both among content creators and others. So we write about what interests us. I mean, certainly mm. for me, when I started to contribute on a more regular basis, I didn't necessarily want to write about the latest games coming out. I would want to write, you know, uh, there's sort of a, a feature that I do called You Really Should Play. And mm. because the conveyor belt of new games has been going faster and faster so that you know, gamers are like uh, in that old episode of I Love Lucy where they're sitting there with the chocolates trying to stuff the chocolate packets and they end up just eating them and eating them so fast, the cult of the new, games get left behind. And also there are classic games out there that I'd love to highlight. So that's one thing that I've talked about or particular genres. Like I've always loved civilization building games. So yeah, I did like yeah. a whole two-part series on if there's a game with a Civ theme, I generally my ears perk up. You know, time travel games, which I haven't written about, but there's another one that I will probably do. Or another one that I'd like to do is maybe film noir. Anyway, there are genres. Mm. I mean, as an art form, board games, there have these genres. There's the train game. It's not even about mechanic. It's not party games necessarily. Like I say, train games span everything from Ticket to Ride to you know, the 18xx genre, there's a whole subculture around those. So I'm interested in that. And then you come get around issues around representation, colonialism, you know, issues around, how shall I say, behavior at conventions, appropriate and inappropriate. So those are things that, you know, people have written about tricky themes, you know, what's the fine line between using a theme to give a game flavor and just doing five minutes worth of research on Google and, and appropriating it, which has been done, you know, uh, yeah. but people have a lot less patience for that today. And, and I think that's a good thing myself. Yeah. So that's how we look for articles is what interests you? What do you want to write about? So, so on that then, because one of the questions I definitely want to ask you is sort of what motivated the creation of the site then? Would it, would it be fair to say that actually the sort of interest in those broader kind of board game culture questions that did you feel they were maybe not being answered in the broader media? Is that kind of part of the motivation? You know, along with the classic one of like, oh, I'd like some free games to play, yes. which I mean, clearly would be. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think there was the, you know, Sean's, you know, for, for the first couple of years, because daily work replacements have been around since late 2014, mm. I started contributing regularly in around 
2016, I think I had done a few little articles oh, before okay. sprinkled in. But before that, it was Sean and, and various people that he had on board. And I know for a fact that that was their intention was to, yes, write about new games coming out, write about the conventions, covering the conventions and so on, but also talking about the broader trends in the hobby. Yeah, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. So it's sort of, you get to cover those kind of broader questions, social, political issues. Yes. And things like genre as well. And that, that I have to say, that's a very interesting question for me because one of the ways that in the kind of board game design side of things, things mm -hmm. get very clinically divided up sometimes, I think, is between theme and mechanic. So mm -hmm. it's just as, as if these, firstly, these things are completely distinct and that you either choose to describe a game in one way or in another. And yet the interesting thing about, for example, your train games is that within the context of train games, as you say, there's a huge variety from Ticket to Ride to 18xx. But actually, there is some still some kind of group similarity to them. There's something about like the whole notion of route planning, like is often nearly always is like is almost always in a train game, right? Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. some sense, you, you can mm -hmm. make a, a train theme game like Russian Railroads that doesn't have anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's really just mm -hmm. a replacement game. It kind game. of deconstructs the whole train thing in that respect. Yes, Russian Railroads does. Yes, it, exactly. But broadly speaking, there's like a kind of there's like again a, a kind of commonality to it in the same way yes. that I guess a time travel game allows you to visit multiple periods, which is it's sort of all the time travel games are going to be like that, right? Because that's that's in the soul of what time travel is. Right, right. So I've been thinking a lot about this recently, and I, I've noticed more and more in marketing on, on Kickstarter, on Facebook, a, a game will be described purely in terms of its mechanics. Oh, this is an area majority worker placement game. And this yeah, is a, a yeah, and yeah. so forth. And more and more, it gets on my nerves because... Ultimately, I think mechanics and designing around mechanics is, is very hard, but it's a craft. It's not an easy craft, but in terms of a creative expression, a game, a game is a storytelling machine. It, that is my mm. current, in terms of thinking about what is a game, because that's another discussion that's been going on on board game Twitter is defining yeah, what, yeah. what is a game. And there've been some very good ones, but a game is a machine that helps to tell stories that ends with someone winning or losing. Right. So for yeah. instance, in Six Nymphs, there is a loser there and no winners, that's fine. So um, it's how you tell the story. And I, I, I think more and more designers are thinking more in terms of what experience do they want the players to have? Mm. And then they try and figure out how, which mechanics uh, would best serve that mm. experience, not theme, but experience. And yeah, starting maybe with Tolkien. I don't know. Somewhere along the way, we've, we've there's been this whole thing towards these dreadnought games of mechanic piled upon mechanic. Maybe Great Western Trail. Some of them are are great games, but honestly, are they? You know, at what point are they like dreadnoughts where they you know begin to sink into the ocean? Right, so under their own weight, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it ties to that article that I wrote about what is fun. Like, do people have fun with games for many different reasons. Yeah. yeah and completely. for some people, the fun they have is in engaging with the mechanic. Mm. And those people tend not to care about theme. Like, they're the mm. ones who comment, oh, it's just the game, who cares, blah, blah, blah. But that's fine for them. But for other people, you can't separate the two. And... Personally, I've kind of, you know, the mechanics should be good and they should work, but they should be at the service of some, I mean, there's already plenty of games that are about mechanics. Like what about doing something new with, with the form? Because mm. it is an art form. 
Yeah, completely. Well, so that's really interesting. So I mean, when I, I spoke a few episodes ago to Chris Eggett, who's the tabletop gaming magazine, the UK yes. editor, very much, this was very much the same kind of angle that he was coming from. And I think it's very much the kind of angle that I come from things in Nailer Games as well. And it's like a relative, it's of course a bugbear of mine to see things described in this kind of list of mechanics. Right, right. It, to me, seems like the least imaginative way to, to go around it. And also, in my experience so far, I find very few designers have the kind of uh, truly abstract imagination that allows them to come up with interesting combinations of mechanics in isolation. Like, almost no one I've met yet can do that. Like, there's, no. there's always an idea that goes beyond that somehow. So it seems frustrating. And yet, and this is the really curious question, part of the kind of things that you know, I'm really keen to discuss with you. And yet that does seem such a default way of describing it. And it makes For me sure. wonder what the commercial implications of that are. Well, th there's a musical equivalent, right? When you have a band, it's like, well, what kind of band are you? Are you, mm. you know, are you indie? Are you folk rock? Are you this? Are you emo? Are you EMD, trap music? So I think some of it comes from a marketing perspective that people who sell games want an easy way to describe them that is going to hook people. Yeah. And many marketers in many genres are about labeling and compartmentalizing because mm. you can quantify that. So I think that's part of where it comes from. And mm. I also think part of it comes from people who come into the hobby, they're new, they're looking for a way to classify games because when an art form is new, it is possible to familiarize yourself pretty well with the entire form. Like if you were a jazz fan in 1925, you could pretty well listen to every jazz record in existence if you wanted to. Because <laughs> that's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? <laughs> that... And, you know, by the 40s yeah. and 50s, though, jazz had fragmented in so many different forms, and there were very political differences between those forms. I mean, yeah. if you were a bebop fan, you were, you know, not going to be listening to New Orleans jazz. Or in England, you know, if, if you were a mod, you were not a rocker, you know, or you were a yeah. trad jazz fan and so on. So... Part of it is also, from the consumer standpoint, a way of finding their way into their passion and also belonging to a group. Oh, I love Eurogames. I love Ameritrash. I love whatever. I love yeah. worker placement games. And I'm astonished at people who post and say, you know, I would never play a worker placement game or I would only play, I only want to play worker placement. But that's the same musically for me. Like, I would almost never say, okay, I only want to listen to... Uh, Elvis Costello or whatever. I love Elvis Costello, yeah. but so by nature, I am an eclect eclecticist. Yeah, yeah. I'm an agnostic. And I believe more, as I get older, when I was a child, I loved abstracts. I, chess was really the first game I remember learning. And then I got into Japanese chess and Chinese chess and then Go and then Go so on. But the older I get, the more I want there to be some kind, and those have narratives. Those games do have narratives. Mm. In chess, you have you know, the opening and the middle game and the end game. So there is a narrative that emerges out of the gameplay. But the older I get, the more I feel like, I think when you play a game a lot, the same game over and over, you learn its story arc. Like Monopoly, for example. Gosh, when, you know, Monopoly, there's an early game and a mid game and end game. Today, I think we want a lot more hand-holding in terms of what is the theme. I do, anyway. I do. Yeah. I, I want some kind of story. Yeah, completely. Well, I think this comes back to your kind of point about the, the storytelling engine again that games are, is that actually you, you want to do that and you want you want to be a clear arc to do that. I think that's one of the things I feel about so many games that I often bounce off a little bit, is that they actually lack that arc. And somehow, 
there's something isn't there fundamentally about the journey of going from an early game where there's you know you're often if it's a let's just take the example of something that's a bit euro-ish let's say you're building things up you're straggling around for little bits of resources mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. the mid game moves to something where you, you, you suddenly you've got money you can buy the good stuff you're right. building some kind of engine and then a kind of end game where it suddenly all accelerates forward and it rapidly comes together and it's a sort of race to see who built the best engine who made the cleverest use in the mid game of how things were doing and it builds towards a crescendo and if it like doesn't have that it seems like it's very weak and so as you said that the abstract thing is an interesting one because as you said those games have uh, close to zero theme as we would think about it normally and yet they would still have almost a story arc that kind of story arc emerges from the design mechanic like when we talk mm. about the pacing of a game you know for instance with monopoly one house rule that many people have and in fact it's almost an official house rule where you have that accelerated start where you deal out some initial properties to everyone oh yeah Right, because it's, it's acknowledged that the early game in Monopoly as played is unnecessary, as yeah. it were. If it were designed today, they would have gotten rid of it. So that kind of pacing and that part of the storytelling is done at the, at the level of mechanics. But then you have the story above that. And it doesn't have to be a fantasy story. I tried to think of a games that, that do do that. And it's hard. It's a hard needle to thread. Cloud Age kind of does that. I mean, Alexander mm. Pfister is, I think of him as the D.W. Griffith of board games because oh, wow. he, okay. he yeah. is the first guy to take the Euro and try and tell a campaign style game using Euro mm. mechanics. Interesting. Also, Friedman Frieser, who I, I think also is like a mad genius. You talked about designers who have abstract things of design. I mean, what is copycat but a conscious effort to create a Frankenstein monster of mechanics and make it work? Interesting. I, actually, I don't know that game at all. Oh, oh. Also, if you 504, which is his, in some ways his magnum opus in that sense, where it's literally a sandbox where you choose a main mechanic a sub-mechanic and a victory condition thing. And it's like those books oh, with the monsters, wow. head, body, and tail. Yeah. But they're all themeless. They're all themeless, but you can create 504 different euros using, you know, this sandbox of a thing. So particularly you as a designer, I think yeah. it's an invaluable tool as a designer, frankly, because you have your choice of nine mechanics. There's stock buying, root building, area majority, oh, wow. combat, all these different things. And you can choose any of them as your main mechanic, any of them as your subsidiary mechanic, any other of them. So it's nine times eight times seven, which is 504. But he's now with the Fable system also begun to think about games like, you know, that have an ongoing story arc, like not, well, Fium a little bit. Uh, I'm thinking of Sand, the, the one with Sand, Fable, Sand. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, okay. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I, you're, you're making me realize how comparatively unfamiliar I am with his work. But that's fascinating that the thought of, you said, the unusual idea, well, the idea of, of kind of choose your own mechanic. I think that's something that kind of lots of people had as an idea, right? But to actually implement that is quite challenging to make that work. Well, most of them, there are groups who have played literally through all 504. Uh, I mean, what? His idea, yes, yes. His idea was to give this to the world and let people find the best combos. You know, he didn't claim that he knew which combos were best because each one is uniquely numbered with a three-digit mm. number. So as a, as a game or game system, it's, it's not great. But as a 
philosophic kind of sandbox. Yeah. I, it's brilliant. One more to play from that point of view, probably. Yeah. I mean, Fister, though, with Journey to Noydale, even before that, the Oh My Goods game with its two, Oh My Goods, which is a beautiful little Euro. I call it a TARDIS game because it's mm. it's a tiny game, but it's bigger on the inside. So it's, it's you know, the play space is huge. And then he's got the Escape to Canyon Brook and Longsdale. And you know, trying to tell a narrative. It's not very sophisticated. It's like the early video games, which say they have branching narratives, but really right, they, keep, yeah. they keep converging. You know, it's not a true yeah, branching narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's reconverging back with a main trunk arc, basically. Yes, exactly. That's what Cloud Age is. Mm. Uh, but it's still trying to go to, to tell a different kind of story mm. because it requires a whole different set of than a design, a mechanic design. Yeah, makes a huge amount of sense. It's, it's, I find this really interesting. The question for me, though, that, that thinking about how this this idea of the dominance of mechanics plays out commercially, though, seems very interesting because 504 is a good example of a game that is a really interesting game to play as a designer, as an aficionado, in the same way that you might try something like molecular gastronomy, right? Which is that it's like, it's this isn't what great, <laughs> food that you take your family right. out for a nice meal right. to have yeah, right? yeah, this is yeah, because yeah. you want the experience of oh it's the bacon flavored ice cream right, it'll right. be interesting it won't right. necessarily be actually great it won't be hearty it won't really give you the same kind of feeling of like oh my god that was just amazing you'll like to go right. that was clever yes and so that's yes. really interesting to me that and the reason why these mechanic terms i find them so fascinating in the hobby game community get used a lot to describe products even commercially i go on a kickstarter campaign i see people selling them that way mm-hmm. is it to me it seems almost like the mechanics are, are a bit more like, if you were to take the musical analogy to me, a bit like saying, this is the time signature this is in. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or this is the key that it's in, which right. I don't maybe know enough about music, but I still feel like if you're a music aficionado, you're a real fan, you still probably won't use those terms as your primary descriptions, right? Because genre, like trains, like, for example, as, as an example of a genre, or for example, games that are like Civ games, for example, mm-hmm. you know, that's a really good example of a genre. Um, are, are like a kind of higher level collection of those ideas, right? In the same way that, you know, jazz or, for example, or rock will have certain keys, certain chords, certain time signatures that are more likely to be common than others inside mm-hmm. that, that category. So if that's a reasonable analogy, why is it that our hobbyists like to use those more technical terms? When you look at game reviews from the 1990s, before Catan even came along, they never talked about mechanic, really. I mean, uh, Games Magazine, not Games Magazine UK, which is a different beast entirely, but the American Games Magazine, which has been around since the late 70s and used to be my go-to for game reviews. The game reviews would generally talk, I mean, it would be more about the experience of playing the game, what's happening in the game, what does it feel like, where are the challenges, and so on. And then Magic came out. Magic was really the first shot over the bow of something new. And then Catan, and then the gradual influx of Euros. At some point, and it would be interesting to try and trace this back now that I think about it, which is a great idea, and then I'm going to write it back down, is when did reviews start to focus more on the mechanics than the story that the game was trying to tell or the experience Mm. because mechanics are not experience you know they're often confused with each other 
but it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, hopefully I will remember what that means. Aha, the class, so, classic note-taking, absolutely. <laughs> it's like waking up from a dream and, ah, brilliant idea. So, <laughs> um, so I, I mean, did it emerge out of BGG because BGG had these, you know, tagging by mechanic? Was it purely a function of BGG's structure? That's just off the top of my head. Is it something because German gamers, as they used to be called, and then Euro gamers tended to deconstruct the games and they're the ones who figured out, like, I don't think when, like the term worker placement, mm. like when Agricola came out, I don't think the words worker placement were anywhere in the rules. I don't think the term role selection was in Puerto Rico or even Citadels, which is where it came from. So at some point, someone coined the phrases, right? And then people yeah. decided, oh, this is a good shortcut to talking about the games. And the same with the term gateway game, which is something that Eric Lang tweeted about a couple of weeks ago, is the term gateway game started as an ironic, really an ironic comment on games as habit forming. Yeah, yeah, and, completely. And then became, it was positive versus a normative term. Yeah. It was basically saying that this game got me hooked on games. Yeah. Um, and then it became, somewhere along the way, it became a normative term. As opposed to describing something, it became something that you were aiming for. Yeah. So I want to design a gateway game. And even at the time, I actually found the original Board Game Geek thread that is the earliest mention of the term gateway game that I could find from 2007. Oh, wow. That's quite late, isn't it? Really? Yes, yes. First of all, it's quite late. It's really after the first golden age. Second of all, it's 15 years ago, practically. And people were having the same arguments then about good that it's a game as a gateway game. Some people were using it in a snobby way. Some oh, people were, wow. All the things that were, you know, even the term gatekeeping, which is, is a newer term, was happening in the context of that discussion, although they didn't call it gatekeeping. It was just snobbery. I don't want to be a snob and so on. So the use of the mechanic to sell the game happens or kind of organically. I mean, it's like you say, it's almost as just saying, oh, I really like that band. They only use Gibson guitars and, you know, PV amps. Yeah. I like that sound or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Now, for, for gearheads, they do care about that stuff. But you have to be quite an anorak, if they may appropriate a British right. term. Yes, completely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's really inside baseball, uh, to use in a more American term. Mm. So partly it's a signaling device. If I'm using these terms, I'm signaling that I know a lot about games. Uh, you know, you could call it virtue signaling in, in a board game context. Yeah. Like I'm signaling that I... Um, pretty smart about these things yeah. but it starts a short useful shorthand but then like many things it becomes a shortcut to thinking about it. yes yes now this to me seems like the most dangerous bit of it all because the the thing that i find typically uh, and not to be unfair on my fellow publishers on this one is that if the publisher is choosing to use a list of mechanics to design their game that's nearly always a shorthand for me that i'm not going to be interested in their game like every time I say that, I'm like, oh, I won't like that because the design approach behind it will be that, as you said, the shortcutting the thinking of like, we've got to put the blocks together. We've got to make one version of 504. That's all we're doing. Well, it's also the same as, you know, if a game is described itself as wacky, 
what the zany <laughs> yeah, game, yeah. you know, then I also the almost always it goes, you know, I put it back on the shelf, either, you know, analog or in digital. It's like, no, it, a game that has to sell itself like that on, on the box mm. is probably not a game I'm going to like. I could be wrong. Interesting. But, you know, the sad thing to me is that many fledgling designers and publishers think it's a good thing. They think that it's helping them find their mm. audience. Mm. Don't you, don't you think? Uh, I, I think they do. And the thing that maybe also, I think, confuses the issue is that they might be right to some extent in the sense that the, the lack of shorthands that we can get our kind of like creatively our heads around or what a conceptual around what kind of certain games are proves to be really challenging. So, for example, at Naylor Games, one of the things that I, I talk about that I realize is an internal idea that I generally draws me to games is ambition of vision. So mm -hmm. that's something mm -hmm. where I'm like, mm -hmm. almost every game that does that uh, has an ambition of vision. I know that when I play it, I will enjoy it to some extent. Even if it's a beautiful failure, I will love it for the fact that it tried to do something that was quite ambitious. And so for, for Naylor Games, that's kind of, I guess, one of the pillars of what therefore I always want to do with everything is that the kind of rule is every game we produce has to be in some way ambitious. And I think- But I um, think that's true of most game companies. And, and I think about video game companies as well, because I think the video game industry I'm beginning to see the equivalent of AAA games now coming out as in board games. For instance, Lost Ruins of Arnak to me is a AAA board oh, game. Oh, interesting. In the sense, it, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Mm. And it's very well designed and so on. But there's something fundamentally, and actually, you know, it's got some neat things. But okay, well, I want to go back to the thing you oh. said before. I think many yeah. video game and board game companies start with that philosophy because when you're little, when you're small, you're, you're agile, you're nimble, you can absorb a loss. And But later on, when you get bigger, and you're responsible maybe to, sh to shareholders yeah. or to a board, then you inherently become more cautious. And we've seen mm. what's happened in the video game industry now, as in the movie industry, where, you know, think of how many AAA video games are basically, you know, now we've got Resident Evil Village, there's Mass Effect 2 has just come out, all these things. There's actually a British YouTuber, well, he's really Australian, but I think he lives in England now. His name is Yahtzee Croshaw, in zero punctuation. And his philosophy of video games is really begun to infect my view of board games in that sense of games that kind of make you numb as opposed to games to make you feel. So there's a comfort zone in games like Gears of War and Halo and, you know, waist-high cover shooty, shooty, shooty games. Mm. And they sell incredibly well, Call of Duty. But he has a soft spot for the games that are brilliant. You know, he judges quality by the ambition of the games. And so it's hard to talk about quality in games in general, but I agree with you that a game, well, how do we judge quality in games? Let me ask you this. I mean, forget about BGG ratings, which we know are kind of a joke for lots of different reasons. How do we rate what makes a good game? Uh, wow, well, that's a big question, I, I, but I am gonna have a go at it because I think this is a really interesting one. I think for me, it's something about a kind of totality of experience tied to a particular context, which is it sounds like a very French philosophical way of putting it. So I'm going to try and put a little <laughs> bit more detail on it than that. Exactly. Come on, Gaulois, and I'm and I'm philosophical, impressive sounding. But I think what I mean by that is is that if I think of some really excellent games I've played recently, one that I really enjoy that I've got really into recently is Eon's End. And that's one that I find particularly the deeper you go into it 
the 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 much 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 more enjoyable it gets so i've played now about 30 games of it or something like that mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. we've fought something like 30 different monsters in the game and there's something very complete about we sit down for this experience where we're going to have a battle against something and it rewards us in the kind of ways that I think kind of almost every co-op game does, the sense of kind of camaraderie and team that we mm -hmm, have. Mm -hmm. But what it also does, which I think is, is so sophisticated for me, is that it seems to consistently deliver on a degree of uncertainty about what we should do as well mm -hmm. as building a kind of a narrative tension towards the end as well. So that sometimes the game does come down to a flip of a card. In a really tense game, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it will be, well, if one card, if the nemesis goes next, we're dead. But mm -hmm, we've won mm -hmm, if it's mm -hmm, us. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the moment of mm -hmm. that when you turn that card is just absolutely magnetic. So there's something about a kind of narrative tension that it has, which is hugely enjoyable, and, and a genuine strong feeling of a powerful sense of choice and branching paths in multiple possible directions where I have found with the person I play with on a regular basis, my developer Jaya, that we don't, we're not able to alpha gamer and, and, and come up with the optimal solution. It somehow goes beyond, which is obviously the classic challenge that lots of more like simpler co-op games have. And so I think it's this sense of like, I feel like I'm somehow even if it's not actually, I would say it's the most thematically rich game in the sense that often I don't think we talk in world story terms as much as we could right, in, in other right. games. But however, right. we are emotionally transported to the experience of are we going to do, are we not going to beat this thing? For me, it's like, is the emotional transport there for the kind of situation that you're in? So I think this is the totality of experience point for me is about really about em emotional transport, engagement and transporting in place, dare I say. So my mind goes to a different place. So a, a, a light card game can also do that. But in my experience, and this is where my, my personal understanding of, of what quality means to me, I am so big on being transported. I want to escape somewhere else that actually there are very mm -hmm. few light card games that ever really satisfy me because they don't do that. They're so abstracted, they can't take me anywhere. And I think the ability to do that and then the quality aspect for me is like, can you transport me emotionally and can you do it consistently? Which is, I think, the really hard bit because it's we've all known those experiences. But I think, can you consistently transport someone across is where the real quality is? And then everything about like components, everything about tightness of pace are all things that are feeding that. I think that's the closest I can get to an idea of what quality is. Are you playing Legacy or are you playing regular Aeon's Both. Oh, okay. Because I haven't played the Legacy. I have played, uh, in fact, I kickstarted the original when it came out originally. And I have the app and I've played that as well. So is there a stronger narrative in the Legacy? Uh, that's a really interesting question. So I think the Legacy was the pinnacle of the experience for me. Because I think it does that really nicely. It has this really lovely system where your character obviously is, is every mission gaining a permanent upgrade. And, and what's really nice about that, and where I think for me, it's been the best legacy experience I've played so far, is that those upgrades are incredibly material to how your character works. So uh, unlike in some situations like Pandemic, for example, where, yeah, it changes the game and there's things you can do, it's kind of interesting. It doesn't feel like it's, it's part of your character's personal development, truly because it completely changes your play style. You get to a certain point, you're like, oh, well now I can use this with this. Because you're also selecting which cards go into your shop and things like right. that. So that, right. that I find really good. And what they've done recently is that the next set of expansions that afterwards they released for that was one where they came up with a kind of halfway house campaign system with a similar idea of where you get upgrades incrementally over the course of four games in a story sequence. And it doesn't quite work for me because actually they tried to make the story generically fit so that you can plug in any monster. It doesn't work. And that's an example of where the, the vision, although the vision is great, they've kind of fallen short for me 
the execution. It's not yeah. there. It's like one where I'd go, right. uh, close but no cigar, guys. You could actually have done this right. a bit differently if you'd actually given me more legacy content. I think I would have preferred that. But yeah, that that's what that bit does, for example. The key thing is, is that the evolution of character means that you really begin to get under the skin of exactly how your character operates. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, thinking of the video game equivalents, Fallout New Vegas for me is one of the best video games of all time in that even 10 years later and as janky as it is, there are still so many ways to play it. Even if you've played it, even if you've played the story through and there are all the different endings, with, with, even without taking in mods and stuff, there are just so many ways you can play. Again, there's a different YouTuber, many a true nerd, who always finds like a new twist on, you know, this time in the playthrough, I'm going to try not to kill anyone. So you impose your own constraints and so on and so forth. But it changes the narrative as well. I mean, Fallout New Vegas has so much writing in it. And it's just a huge game. There's just so much there, there. But then there are also simple games that have a lot there. I, I actually think that No Thanks is a light card game that you can still be talking about what happened the next day. Mm -hmm. It's not the only way to describe a quality game, but I think a a good game is a game where even the next time you get together with your group or it becomes part of the lore of your group, the meta of your group, where it's like, oh yeah, you're going to do this to me like you did to me with no thanks or whatever. So it, you know, you've integrated it into your own life story as it were. But it's also, I think with say with Eon's End is you've played it now 30 times. Yeah. So you have given the effort you know, there are so many games that come out now. When, when I look back to the old reviews from or, or things from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, people played their games a heck of a lot more times. So they were able to dig deep in and find quality where today we wouldn't have the patience. And so the standard, the bar is a lot higher. I once did a review for a guy for sort of an abstract game. And I told him, uh, it's not a bad, I, I said to him, I, I don't like writing bad reviews. I, I personally feel that if someone gives me a game and it's not good, I would rather give them personal feedback than kind of shame them in public. It's just not, for me, I don't live to bash other people's uh, create, you know, passion. As a creator myself, I just, you know, if you want to shit all over it, tell me personally, I can learn something. But to do it in public, I just, I don't have that killer yeah. instinct. And I know reviews that don't. In this case, I said, look, I can't write a review of this because this game is too flawed, blah, blah, blah. And I enumerated, he goes, well, you don't understand. There's like this early game and mid game and end game. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, you'd have to play the game a lot to, to actually find it that in there. And these days people don't have the patience to find those nuggets. I think these days the expectation a lot more from gamers and reviewers is they're going to, the pressure on content creators is to write a review after even playing something once. So I think this is, this is, this is something I want to sort of bring us to. This is, I think it's really interesting is about what this means for the practical challenges for publishers. Cause I know lots of listeners will be very interested in thinking, okay, how can I apply some of this? Cause I think what's so fascinating about this subject is, is that it's easy for us to, to actually discuss in quite a lot of detail, trying to describe, you know, what it is, what, what, what good is and what the experience is. We, we're not able to just go, what is this? Right. We're able to say, yeah. it's like, okay, well, it, we've got several different concepts there. And I think what it does is, number one, I think it illustrates very nicely the, the, the bind that publishers are in to some extent, it seems, in terms of how they describe their games. So maybe they should be a bit less afraid sometimes of just using more genre titles, because I actually think that genres connect with people. To be honest, if someone tells me it's a train game, they've already got my interest to some extent, more than if they said sure. it's a root building game. I'd go, uh, no. 
Right, right. right. To describe it in qualitative mm. terms as opposed to quantitative terms. Mechanics to me are quantitative. Mm. Why? As a because they ah, because you can break them down as opposed to qualitative where you are talking about this kind of ineffable experience. I mean, honestly, if you think if Dungeons and Dragons were marketed, you know, well, first thing you do is you're going to roll some dice and create your character with three six-sided dice, and you're going to do this. If it were marketed like that, it would never have taken off. It was it was created well. The creation story of Dungeons and Dragons is huge, but it spread like wildfire because of word of mouth. And I guess, mm. and if you look at magic, if you look at Cards Against Humanity, yeah. very different examples, or, or Mafia Werewolf, they spread because, well, they were easy to teach. And essentially, Dungeons and Dragons is, depending on how you look at it, has a low entry mm. bar, depending on how much work you as the DM want to do. You know, Catan for the time was considered incredibly complex compared to the standard of American games. It was considered a complex game. That's how much the Overton window of complexity has Oh, changed. the Overton so, window of complexity. I love that phrase. Right. That, yeah. that, that, so that's a really key, key idea to keep in mind. I think publishers need to think about is that. Oh, and I, I don't take credit for that. That's Eric Lang, once oh. again, the designer Eric Lang. Uh, he does coin a good phrase. He does coin a good phrase. Yes, uh, he is, yes. But going back to your thing about publishers, mm. I think it's increasingly hard to stand out from the crowd. Mm. There's so much pressure now to have slick Kickstarter videos. Mm. You know, there's all this pressure, just like in guitar magazines, you know, like I never bought guitar magazines. I played, I was in a band, I did all these things. Occasionally, if there was an interview with Jimmy Page or someone who I thought, or I'll find out something interesting, I would buy it. And it was full of all these ads for like, even now there are ads on YouTube, learn guitar at home and all these different things. And it's like, you learn by doing. Yeah. And for publishers, there's all this thing about, well, you've got to have this kind of mic and this kind of camera setup and this kind of ring. Oh, the ring light, the ubiquitous ring light, yeah. That can be a real block, not just financially, but also psychologically. And I feel like, again, some of these begin to look more like trailers than telling me anything about the game oh, itself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, a game just launched now, Keystone National Parks, which is getting a lot of buzz from creators because I think the people involved are, are good people and so their friends want to, to hype yep. it. But the video tells me nothing about the game. It's beautiful. It's, I mean, it tells me about the game. I, I, I should take it back. It, it tells me what the game looks like. I feel like I don't come away, mm -hmm. and the same is true for many video game trailers. Like you see these awesome, I mean, it's infamous in the video game industry that the teaser trailer is often nothing like the game itself when you actually see the gameplay footage. So for publishers, the problem is, is a lot of the audience is sucked in by the bling. So I think that to, to a certain extent, high production quality is a good thing, but I think there's diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. the, the, the increase of interest past a certain point maybe isn't worth it maybe you should have spent those dollars developing the game more and play testing it more yeah that's a really interesting one and then the marketing side of that i think is really interesting because i think it's again this it's very easy to look at something from the outside and, say, and, and make a mistake about what is the thing that is driving the value and it's say well oh the the really big campaigns have really nice videos that means we have to have a really nice video right and that it's very easy to do that and i think in kind of almost any business so if you mark and marketing particularly because it's very people don't necessarily understand the logic behind why something is the way that it is and so through mimesis they are just copying it mm. well fear really because they feel like they have to keep yeah up, true you know and and the pressure now for physical components oh just in the last five years 
is to, from my standpoint insane like it, yeah. it adds nothing to gameplay i don't care if a box has spot uv on it what the, fuck? <laughs> what the heck do i care you can believe this that what do i care that the box the box has spot uv on it you know a neoprene a neoprene mat i mean there's quality which adds to the game experience yeah. fine but it, you know like i'm the kind of person that would never spend in-game currency in a video game for like extra sprays or like armor that has no gameplay yeah effect. like i don't care about decorating my character i want stuff that you know but that's a whole different thing about pay to win and so on and yeah. so forth but there's a kind of pay to win thing in video game marketing where you feel like you have to have oh my god there was a guy recently who had a, a game and he posted about it on Facebook and he had this huge mini, like seriously about 16 centimeters tall and it had zero game effect. And he saw that as an incredible plus and people were chiming in going, bro, you're adding like $20 to the no. cost of your game just for that one mini. And he's saying, yeah, but there are people who will buy it because they can paint it and all these different things. And there will be, there's no mm. question that like, you know, Sandy Peterson games and some other things, you know, companies are cashing in on this, you know, with the, with the inserts and the coins, the metal coins. And maybe Scythe was maybe the first game to really in integrate it into the original Kickstarter was the sense of, oh, wow, with the original components, this game is awesome. I don't know. Yeah. I just feel like it's a bit of a dead end and companies that I think really succeed are companies that where the game has been tested and developed very well before they even launch it on Yeah, Facebook. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, Puerto Rico, Andres Seyfarth spent five years testing Puerto wow. Rico before they wow. released it, which is unheard of today. Like yeah. it's ridiculous to spend five years on a game. Again, from a cost perspective. Oh. Again, if you're on a company whose revenue stream demands these constant releases, yeah. there's this pressure you know, and that's what happened in the record industry, in the movie industry. We need our big Christmas release, yeah, we need our big yeah. Christmas single, whatever like this. And that's the, the problem is the business. With the movie industry though, what's really interesting is that then there was this realization that actually the best thing to do was to start making fewer films. And so they started moving towards making a small number of very big titles they knew they could succeed. That's right. Which that's had the negative right. effect of crushing out a load of things, right? Because the curse of the Marvel films in some sense is that, I mean, as a fan of them, I, I, I enjoyed right. them. They're great fun. And, and the way they interconnect is really cool. But it does mean it's like, well, actually, well, this is so bankable that actually we've got very little interest in funding lots of other crazy around the edges stuff. There's no long tail. In other words, and and I think that you know, think of what proportion of the major board game industry is IP driven. Yeah. You know, oh. between Star Wars, Star Trek, Harry Potter, yeah. that's why it is because publishers like movie studios yeah. want something that people recognize. Yes, yes, completely. And Aeon's End, to its credit, manages to do very well despite the fact that its world has its own lore. And yeah. is not dependent on, you know, even Terranoth, which is the fantasy flight kind of universe that they build all kinds of games onto. So, you know, as publishers get bigger, they get more conservative, they look more and more to IP driven things. And so recently, the IP driven games have been amazing, like Funko and Prospero Hall's games, Horrified, oh, the Die yeah. Hard game. Yeah, yeah. Pan Am, like a game about Pan Am. It's, it's, it's actually an excellent game, yeah. but not always. They don't always succeed, but they're more predictable. 
because companies yeah. need predictable revenue streams. Uh, it's hard to know where it's all going to end. Even with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you figure at some point it's going to reach a saturation. I, I think that may may already be, I mean, partly the, the effect of the pandemic has meant the cinema, all the cinemas have been shut down. So that that isn't entirely fair to judge Marvel at the moment on that. But it does seem a little bit like, it always seemed to me the moment Endgame was over, I had this strong feeling of thinking, you've <laughs> kind of ended the story here, if we're honest, right? Like, right, right. It's going to be an uphill battle to come up with a completely new, just as compelling 20 film mega narrative as that. Well, what they've done, what they're doing now with WandaVision and the Winter Soldier is they're filling in the corners, right? Like they, they figure as long as those corners are well written enough and bring in enough fans and they can sell them to Netflix and Netflix will yeah. buy them, then they can keep going, right? And now Black Widow's going to come out. Like, I mean, it is like a, a vein of, of, of ore. You dig out the main ore and then you're forced to frack out the, the bits that, that are harder to get to. And at some point, the load is going to be exhausted. So are, are we, are, question is, and then board games, where, where are we in the life cycle of that? So are, are we at the point where we're, we're fracking for small bits or is it in reality that we are much earlier than that in that life cycle? Because right now, if I'm honest, my view on this stuff, which again, is often unpopular when I say it, it's because the question is, is well, whose games don't get made? But is my view is that I, I still feel like I see personally, and I'd be love to, love to know what you think about this. Uh, too many games that are, are perfectly fine, but not actually that great because they, they don't have the years of development that have gone into them. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. There are lots of games out there that are perfectly fine. They're fine, but they're not great because of the pressure. And again, I, if I were a big designer, like, you know, it's like Bonfire to me, Stefan Feld's relatively most recent game, it's perfectly fine. But honestly, does it really break anything, any new ground? No, it doesn't. And I feel bad, you know, he feels obviously a lot of pressure to keep producing and Uwe with his, you know, he goes through these periods, but where is the board game industry as a mm -hmm. whole? I think there are two. So here are the factors that I think in short to medium to long-term. One is the end of the pandemic. There's a huge, going to be a huge pent up thing of people just getting together and play all the games yeah. that they've accumulated over the last oh, year and a yeah. half. My pile is huge. And there'll be some triage out of that. There's huge amounts of money being spent on Kickstarter. You know, some of these games, the newest Marvel United was I think now the most successful board game Kickstarter ever now, more than Kingdom Death Monster. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think so. I think he, I think they broke that record. And it's a it's a very good game. I, I just recently played it. So there's there's that. There's pent-up demand. Mm. Then there's the digital side of things where you know, at some point, digital technology, which obviously flowered during the pandemic, you got all these online platforms, people have been forced to use them. There are some advantages to them. It's not as good as playing face-to-face, -face, but there are some advantages and they will continue to get more sophisticated. And I'm waiting for an eye table. In fact, I recently got, after five years waiting, essentially an eye table. I was an early adopter for this thing. It took them five years to finally deliver it. It's basically a huge iPad, but I'm gonna write a column about it. It doesn't nearly deliver on it, but imagine not having to deal with the huge cubic footage of boxes and things and rules and pieces yeah, where yeah. the game, you press a button, the game is set up like live in person. Yeah like a live and, and then you would still have, it's like digital music. Some people still love vinyl. They have their mm. vinyl, even their CDs. But most of us, my whole record collection is, is right here on my desktop with digitized basically. And that used to take up whole bookshelves. So the digitization 
of board games is going to be another trend. And then also the bubble will burst, whether it's some other economic factor, because mm. there's a lot of board game arbitrage going on. I mean, copies of Stardew Valley, the board game, going for $300 mm. right now, because it's only available in the United States. Interesting. Yeah, there, there's people who you know are using board games as real estate, essentially. So that's another trend, the commodification of board games, which I talked about in the Game Changers. It's not huge, but it's there. At some point, people are going to sit back and say, I have enough games about medieval merchants turning cubes into other cubes. <laughs> there are a lot of those. How many more do I need? Yeah, exactly. No, I, I completely agree. I do think that, that that's kind of that's the way that's going. Definitely. Okay, so if you were to give advice to publishers in terms of what they're trying to look at, trying to get attention for their games, I guess there's two sides of it we've talked about, but the consumer side, and I think there's still uh, there's some really interesting questions I'd love to come back to another time about, about how some of that, particularly around, around how, how, we, how we pitch and explain things. But from a kind of media perspective, what should publishers from your perspective be, be doing to try to get the attention for the titles that hopefully they're pouring all of this love and work and attention into? Well, honestly, I feel like publishers, if they want more people to buy their games, they should be looking to to get as many different types of voices as possible who create games. The fact is that a lot of people don't see themselves in these traditional board game themes yeah. of medieval merchants, Egyptian yeah. fantasy zombie things. Look at Wingspan, you know, which didn't kick the door down, but it certainly showed that a game about birds oh. could you know, sell yeah. huge numbers because there's a lot of people out there. I mean, the whole point was Elizabeth Hargreaves has said time after time, she and her group didn't care about those themes. They wanted something about what they were interested in. So I think publishers can't just sit back and wait for people to pitch. They need to go out into these underrepresented communities, different voices to look for different kinds of stories because those stories are bound to pull in people who will see themselves as gamers and it will grow. They will sell more games in the long run, I'm convinced. So that is one thing. In terms of telling the story of the games, you know, in the in the details lower down, they should definitely talk about what the mechanics are. But I feel like players want to know how, how well, I mean, players want to know how to play the game, but I think ultimately they want to know what kind of experience they're going to be having here. So, I mean, when we when you look at how books are marketed, they're marketed by genres, but they're, you know, they talk about it, a thriller, mm. uh, you know, a su yeah. suspense. Yeah, yeah. Those are emotions, right? Thrill, suspense, romance, those are emotions. So it's interesting, the language of genre in literature is emotions-based. And, and so I think a realization, perhaps, that, I mean, we there are horror-based games as, as, as board games, but I think reading a little more into the emotional experience of playing the game will again attract a wider audience who aren't as necessarily interested in what the mechanics are. Yeah, yeah. And, and the challenge of that, I guess, is going to be that the, the language is often so poor, I think, around games. So obviously the article I know you referenced that you wrote a little while back about what fun is. Mm -hmm, is that people mm -hmm. say, oh, the game is fun. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, but what does that mean? Like, there's so many different... When we talk about the experience, when I'm playing Eon's End, and I describe, try and describe it to people, I try and avoid the use of the word fun at all costs because it's so it's become almost somehow exhausted of meaning because it, it comes to mean any positive emotion that you have when you're playing a game. Right, right. I mean, yeah, it requires more than a, th a thesaurus or thesaurus. I'm still not sure how you pronounce that, but you need more than just adverbs and things. I think describing 
the, the interaction in broader sense. Again, it's interesting to go back and read, uh, you know, game reviews of an earlier era before these mechanics were discussed. And I, that would be another thing I would advise publishers to do is go back to those gaming magazines, whether we're talking about strategy and tactics, Moves Magazine, The General, those, those are coming out of the war games thing, but even Games Magazine, taking a look at those more in-depth reviews from an era when you had, you didn't have that language to sell games, you had to sell it a different way. Yeah, I, I find that, that element of it kind of really fascinating. It strikes me that one thing I think I expect to happen is for the kind of... Uh, the role of kind of high concept to come in even more. So I think about the way that films are often pitched is that you have, here's the genre expectation, here's the subversion. So it's like, it's a film about a nanny, but it's Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> it's like- But she's a zombie. Yeah. Yes, exactly, so and so, so and so, but it's about zombies, or even, even serious films. So for example, Saving Private Ryan is, it's a second world war movie but it's a kind of hyper-realistic Second World War Right, movie. or Dunkirk. It's, or which one was the movie? Was it, or which one was done with one shot, one long edited shot? Was that Dunkirk or was that... Uh, uh, no, no, Dunkirk is definitely not, not the no, one. No, 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 I'm thinking, thinking about um, 1940... Yes, no, uh, not, oh, is it 1917? I think to my is, shame, I haven't seen it. I have seen it, and it's brilliant. And it's not actually one shot, but it's made to look like it's one shot. It's edited into one long shot. Yes. And, and it is, and, and again, so it's, so it's the First World War in one long shot. Right. And I think what's so interesting about that is that when we talk about games that get our attention, it's about like, here's a genre, it's a train game, but, right? And then it's like, oh, and that seems like a quite a clear understanding. That's probably why that became, something became quite clever. But you know, it's here's the thing is, as long as consumers are willing to throw money at stuff as the status quo, publishers have very little incentive to change. So as in video games again, or movies or whatever else, they are driven by, except the smaller ones are willing to let be led by ambition, but the larger ones are going to be yeah. led by the market, but what is already selling. Uh, but there are exceptions. I mean, in Fantasy Flight, they sometimes they'll have pet projects and so on that will mm. do that. I mean, look at Dominion. Dominion came out of nowhere. Yeah. People, people thought that Donald X. Vaccarino was a pseudonym. Like, they didn't even believe he existed. <laughs> yeah. and, and it was Rio yeah. Grande. And Rio Grande was a major publisher. Yeah. But they, they clearly thought they were willing to take a flyer on it. I think originally they bought the base game and the first two expansions, if I remember correctly. I think they were all designed together, weren't they, all of those, I believe, the at the first same time. eight, the first arc of eight. Baccarino never thought it would ever have bigger legs than that, but he was right. ambitious in terms of thinking about eight. I mean, eight, it's so many cards. Right, right. So if publishers are willing to set aside part of their budget for something that's more adventurous and let creators, as in any, again, in anything, let creators get on with it without mm. interference, then, you know, you can end up with a Graceland. You can end up with uh, Craig Ferguson Late Late Show, which lately I've been obsessed with. And oh. these things were like, you know, they're not under scrutiny. So they have, they, they feel that creative liberty to just go and push the boundaries of what the art form can do. Yeah. Completely, completely. And as you said, difficult, I guess, if you're trying to make a living from it and you're worried about, oh, uh, am I going to be able to pay the bills, uh, not just for me, but for my staff as well, which I think is, is another thing, I think, because I think that's something I encounter quite a bit, is that actually it strikes me quite a lot of people in, public, in game publishing are 
pretty nice folk who are quite responsible and they want their people to be looked after. So it's like taking big bets on like whether this certainly bananas thing will work out or not. Right. Without the kind of like financing that something certain things could have is is a challenge. I can understand why the incentive. And I think that's a very good point you pointed out. It makes actually a very natural fit. A lot of small publishers are quite ambitious to do things that are impressive or trying to trying to push the genre because to some extent you're in a position where you feel very safe to do it. To some extent, because because if, if it blows up, it blows up. It doesn't matter so much. Because for many of the small publishers, it's mm. not it's not even a full time gig. They still have their oh, regular completely. day jobs. Oh, completely. Yeah. So they can, you know, like you're looking at it as in a very expensive hobby at that point. Mm. So, and you've made your peace with the fact that it could all go. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, completely. That, that's com that's completely. Well, you know, I, I would love another time to get into even more detail on these, on, on, on these sort of things. It would be absolutely fascinating because there's so much there that we've gone through, and particularly, I think, around uh, really interesting to get into some of that kind of industry commentary stuff as well, which I think is really interesting. Before we wrap up, though, I'd be really keen to hear about what to expect from you, because I know you do a podcast, The Game Changers, which I want to say right now, just to the audience, anyone who listens to this show should listen to. It is absolutely the best thing I have ever heard on the history of games. It's, oh, it's thank exceptional. You. Thank you so much. I mean, it was a labor of love, and it really is. It's, a, it's my labor of love. And I'm beginning now to coalesce around this, what a season two would look like. And it is going to be around this thing of what is a game and sort of a, an aesthetic philosophy of games. So in other words, what does quality mean? Some of the columns I've written in the spring, this thing about what is fun and the other one about foam, uh, whatever. And then this uh, various other things that I've tweeted about. It's going to come around this whole idea of a game is a storytelling machine with victory conditions. And looking at a game which is inspired by the French architect de Courboisier, who basically wrote the textbook of modern architecture and saying that a house is a machine for living in. And it's, it's oh, from the, uh, interesting. So, which was very controversial. And, you know, some of the yeah. architecture that came out of it, not everyone loves. But I think thinking of a game in that way might provide a framework. And also the language that you use in terms of how much ambition does a game have and judging a game by how well it fulfills that ambition. Yeah. I think I'm going to steal that idea. I think. Oh, so, so basically, yeah. <laughs> so basically what I'm hoping to start soon once I've organized my thoughts better, because for the history one, it was easy to figure out what the 12 episodes would be. This time around, I don't know exactly what the, the, the framework will be, but I'm hoping certainly before the end of 2021 that there will begin to be a season two. I'm hoping we'd like to start doing some videos as well. I'm hoping that as the pandemic begins to lift, here in Ontario and the gaming groups locally and also I mean we have writers from across Canada and in the states so as this mm -hmm. all lifts and people have more stuff to write about I'm hoping to see more you know writing from the daily worker placement www.dailyworkerplacement.com and the game changers bot podcast is I think uh dwp.buzzsprout.com I think okay. I sent you the link to it yes Yes, I'll make sure that's in the description. They'll be in the comments below. Yes. And uh, by all means, if people watching this have enjoyed it and have comments on, on anything that we've talked about, I will definitely uh, love to take them into account and uh, we can talk again soon. I would love to. Thank you so much. Producing Fun is produced by Naila Games. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on Spotify, Stitcher or other major podcasting platforms. Remember, producing fun is also a product, 
and it thrives on feedback. So please leave a review wherever possible or simply send me your feedback directly. You can message me on Twitter at Naylor James or write me an email, james at naylorgames.com. Until next time.